We're looking at Ecclesiastes. That's what we've been going through now for a while. So if you have a Bible, please turn in at the Ecclesiastes chapter 6. What we're learning here is basically how to do life under the sun here on planet Earth, your day-to-day living. What does it look like? Where do we find hope in that? That's what Ecclesiastes teaches us. Um, so you can read along if you'd like. We're going to read Ephesians, uh, Ecclesiastes 6, 10 to 7, 14, a pretty good chunk. Um, you can read along in your Bibles, or it's also going to be on the screen, in case you don't have one. This is the word of the Lord. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Let's stop there and pray. We have this collection, Lord, of things that seem to go in different directions, proverbs and comments, and we wonder what holds this all together. But there's one divine mind, one divine author behind everything. You have a message for us out of this passage, so open up our ears to hear it today. Uh, Fill us, Lord, with understanding and also receptivity and obedience. For our joy and for your glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. When I was a scientist, uh, I worked for a big corporation, and uh, one of the comic strips that was popular around the office was Dilbert. I don't know if anybody's heard of Dilbert. Is that still around? 
uh, it dealt with office life, so people would post these things. <laughs> and I was walking by a cubicle one day, and I saw one that I really laughed at because I really related to it. So Dilbert's picking up a newspaper, and he looks at the headline, and it says, No murders in the city for 120 days. Next panel, he's got a thought bubble over his head, and it says, The Optimist. And the optimist says, we're safe forever. <laughs> Next panel is the pessimist. We're due. <laughs> um, I didn't get much laughter out of that, but it was, a funny, it was a funny comic at the time. The optimist and the pe- pessimist. We're going to live forever. We're due any day to be shot. Uh, those are the two kinds of people I think that you probably have run into. Maybe you're one of them. You probably identify with the optimist or the pessimist. Um, Some people find good news in everything, and some people find bad news in everything. On the whole, I would rather be with the optimists. They're more fun to be around. They're more encouraging. I thank God that I'm married to one. That's a mercy to me. I thank God that I serve with one in Dan. Uh, There's optimists. They're, They're more fun to be around. I relate more to the pessimists, though. Um because they seem more connected to reality. Uh, (laughs) It's my perception, just perception. (laughs) Okay, there's hope coming here, okay? That's not where I end. I'm just saying my heart, that's my heart. That's, That's what I struggle with, okay? It raises a question, though, that our passage answers. What should our attitude be towards life under the sun? Life on planet Earth with all of its good news and all of its bad news. Should we be optimists or should we be pessimists or something else entirely? What what, what should we think about when we read that North Korea is building missiles that might reach the United States? How should we respond to that? How do we respond when tragedy strikes somebody that you love, a bad car accident, or they lose their home? Should we focus on the good? Should we focus on the bad or something else entirely? What set of glasses do we put on every morning to see the world through? This passage gives us an answer, and I'm going to put it in the form. I've put it in the title, actually, of the sermon Uh, It tells us to look at the world with what I'm calling hopeful realism. Hopeful realism. That is, you choose to be hopeful even when reality is distressing. You believe things will turn out for the best even though they're not the best right now. And no one has more warrant to think that way than the believer in Jesus Christ, as, as I hope to show. You might not expect to find teaching like this in the book of Ecclesiastes, Hopeful Realism. It has a bad rap as being sort of a gloomy book, but there's light there. We're going to see that light. We're going to turn to our text and see what it has to say. So the author, we assume to be King Solomon, he's no pie-in-the-sky optimist uh, disconnected from reality. He's aware of what's wrong with the world, and so he lists a number of things that are wrong with the world in this passage Um, from which we can just observe that life has lots of negatives in it. Life has lots of negatives in it. The mood of the passage is very realistic. So beginning in chapter 6, verse 12, he poses the question, 
Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? So there's a negative. Life is short. It's vain, which means fleeting. It's vapor. It's, it's like a shadow. You know, it's there for a little while. You look again, and now it's not there anymore. It says life is like that. Life has a time limit. There's an end to it sometime. It's a fleeting thing. So that's already a negative. Um, and that realization that life is short, it triggers a set of Proverbs that come at us through chapter 7 here. Wise sayings about this short life and the negatives that we experience in this short life. So in chapter 7, he deals with the day of death. Verse 1, uh, the house of mourning. Uh, verse 2, sorrow and sadness. Verse 3, rebukes. Verse 5, oppression and bribery. Verse 7, and things that end. Verse 8, this is a guy that knows the troubles of the world. He knows what life is like. It's got a lot of negatives in it. He's been where we are. He, he's on our turf, we might say. And I always find that refreshing about the Bible that it deals with the things we deal with. <laughs> you don't get the impression when you read the Word of God that it's disconnected from reality, at least not if you read it honestly and with an open mind. In the Bible, you find suffering and you find sufferers and, and you have psalmists who say things like, How long, O Lord? Because it deals with real life, the negatives in life, but it brings hope to those negatives. And what the writer has to say about the negatives in this case is actually very surprising because he says, in essence, negatives aren't all, all necessarily negative. Negatives aren't necessarily all negative. In fact, he goes as far as to say they're even better than the things we consider as positives. So listen to this verse again from verses 1 to 8. Uh, verse 1, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. The day of death is better than the day of birth, he says. Your funeral is better than your birthday. That sounds opposite of what we would expect, doesn't it? Verse 2, same theme. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Funerals are better than festivals, he says. Not what we expect. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. Really? I thought laughter is inherently better than sadness, isn't it? We want to be happy. Nobody wants to be sad. This seems backwards. Verse 5 tells us it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools. You know, I kind of can, I can get that one. Song of fools doesn't sound good. Who wants to listen to that, right? But a rebuke as the, as the better alternative? <laughs> There's certainly other ones. There's other alternatives than that. A rebuke, being told that you're wrong, being pointed out that you've sinned, being corrected, that, that doesn't feel good. And he says, that's better. Uh, one more, verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. We generally think the reverse, right? There's a lot of excitement when you start something. Uh, a new job, like the young adults group, day one of vacation. Uh, we're sad when things end. But he says the end is better than the beginning. So we've got this list of negatives, and he's saying they're better than the positives, and that goes against the grain. So we have to ask, what does he mean? Is he being optimistic, or is he being pessimistic? Is he calling bad things good and ignoring 
the, the badness, or is he calling good things bad and ignoring the goodness? Is he, is he optimist, pessimist, or something else? And I think the answer, which I stated at the beginning, is that he's being a hopeful realist. He's not calling good things bad or bad things good. He's saying that bad things point us to good things. He's saying negatives teach us things that positives can't teach us. Things that genuinely do give us hope in this world of troubles under the sun. So let's go back through these verses and unpack this idea of hopeful realism and see where I'm getting that from. We won't cover all the verses I read, but there are a few worth considering in some detail. So again, verses 1 and 2. Good name is better than precious ointment. The day of death than the day of birth. Thought continues into two. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living take it to heart. So he's talking about death. He's talking about a funeral. The house of mourning. Death is the biggest negative that we're all going to face. Um, and yet, he says, there's something better about a funeral than a birthday par- party. So, how is it better? Well, the immediate reason he gives is that the living lay it to heart. Uh, in other words, the funeral forces us to consider that death is also going to be our end. It forces us to think about the brevity of life that passes like a shadow. And that means it forces us to think about our lives and ask the big questions like, what am I doing with my life? Am I living for the right things? And most importantly, what's on the other side of death? And am I ready for that? You don't ask those kinds of questions at birthday parties. You ask them at funerals. Because at a birthday party, everything is happy, everything is celebration, you just enjoy the moment, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. But funerals have a bigger impact on your life because they make you evaluate. And that has the possibility of changing the course of your life for better. There is hope in the reality of death. I mentioned on another time that I went to Mark Columbia's funeral in January. So some of you know Mark Columbia. I didn't know him that well except for the few meetings that we had together. and They were always very positive. I very much appreciated Mark. He was a big fan of Sovereign Grace Church. He wanted us to succeed. Um, but it wasn't until his funeral that I heard his life story, really, for the first time. And I, and I saw and I heard how much impact he had on people. Um, how his wife and his kids praised him for all kinds of things about him. And, and that impacted me. It impacted me so much, I, I took notes. I took notes at a funeral. Um, and I wrote notes to self. And here's some of the things that I wrote in my, my phone. Uh, one, love your family and tell them and show it to them often. Because Mark did that. Uh, two, write short and regular notes of encouragement and life updates to your friends. Keep a journal of life's joys, the works of God, and promises to pass on to your kids so they can see God. And for God is good, live with eternity in view. So it's lessons like that which I got at the house of mourning which make me agree with the writer of Ecclesiastes. 
It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. It made me lay important things to heart. It will, Lord willing, make me a better man. But I have to say, if that's all funerals will do for a person, it still isn't enough grounds for a hopeful realism. So you resolve to make yourself a better person. That's good. But you still die. And what then? If all you do is go out of existence, as some believe that you do, you won't be around to hear any of the praises about you. You will just be gone into nothingness. But Scripture affirms that you continue to exist after you die. For example, Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You die physically one time, no reincarnation, one death. And then there's something after death, namely judgment. A decision is rendered on your life. A verdict is reached and a sentence or a reward is given by the judge who is God, our creator, which assumes that you are still there to be judged. There's a you that continues beyond the grave, and you will experience either a sentence or a reward in God's eyes based on His judgment of your life. And we know from other scriptures that the sentence is hell, the reward is heaven. Like Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, the second death which is carried out in hell. That's wages. That's earned income for sin. But the free gift of God is eternal life. That's heaven. That's what he gives as a gift. Those are the options. We will experience one or the other when we die. And truth be told, we all deserve the sentence because we've all sinned. We've all broken God's law. But the good news of the gospel is that heaven is a gift to those who put their faith in Jesus. By grace you are saved through faith, he says in Ephesians 2. Saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. You don't have to work for this. You receive it as a gift. You put your faith in Jesus as Savior, the one who died in your place, and you get heaven. That's what the judge will say. If you trust him who died on the cross, heaven's doors open for you as a gift. Life forevermore, guaranteed. Which is why the Christian's day of death actually is better than the day of birth. (laughs) Because that's when he or she enters the glory of the eternal kingdom. (laughs) To a new and a better kind of life. A life we cannot even imagine. A happy outside of whatever you know happiness to be. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, Jesus said in John 11. The Christian is really the only person who has a solid reason to be hopeful about death. (laughs) To be hopefully realistic. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to die, but it's going to be good. (laughs) Only the Christian can really say that. Because eternal life is only through Jesus Christ and no other. 
The house of mourning makes people think about these things. It, it makes the living lay to heart their own mortality and potentially put their faith in Christ for a hope beyond death. I've had some of my best opportunities to share the gospel at funerals. People are thinking about death. They're sad. They're wondering what to make of it, that this person's gone, and that's going to be you someday, and they're open to things. At least they'll hear it. They expect to hear it. Good opportunities at funerals. Let's look at another of these Proverbs that say that something apparently negative is better than something positive. Verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Again, it's when things start that we're the most excited. Uh, Not when things end. Unless you're running a marathon. In which case, the ending is very good. (laughs) And you say, I'm so glad that's over. And somebody else could say, why did you even start? (laughs) But generally speaking, we like beginnings of things because we have high hopes about what's going to happen. We imagine the new job is going to turn into a great career. Uh, We imagine the new church is going to grow and grow and grow. Uh, The new house is going to become the center of family and friends' lives, so beginnings are full of hope. But then Solomon tells us the end is better. And what he means is the end result of a thing, how it finally turns out, what happens if you are patient in spirit and see a thing through to the end, as opposed to being proud in spirit, and not being able to work hard and wait for the result. What he's basically saying is take the long view of things. Take the long view. Many things don't start, they start, but they don't go anywhere. Or something blocks your dream from being fulfilled. Your job might not be what you expect. The church plan doesn't go well. Your home gets gets sold. The preacher would say, expect that. This is a tough world we live in. Things don't go according to plan, but wait to see what happens in the end. Take the long view. Keep at it. Be patient. Don't give up. Hang on till the end of the movie, so to speak. Keep hopeful because it may turn out better than you imagine. An example of that for me is the history of Sovereign Grace Church in Bloomington, Minnesota. That's our former church um, before we were called here nine years ago. Um, it was once a small independent church. It wasn't a part of any kind of denomination. Uh, in 1996, I became an elder there, and a few years into it, we formed a partnership with John Piper's church, Bethlehem Baptist Church. And this partnership resulted in our church doubling in size in one week because about 120 of their people came over and joined our church. And along with that, we got several really, really gifted leaders. Our senior pastor, Rick Gamash, our worship leader, John Bloom, he, he's the director of Desiring God. I mean, these are seriously talented guys. Uh, and not only that, giving jumped through the roof. <laughs> Within the first year, we paid off our mortgage on the building. We owned it outright. Um, that was a very exciting beginning for us until it wasn't exciting anymore. Because in the course of time, expectations weren't met. Uh, The people from each originating church expected it to be like the church that they had, and it wasn't like either one of them anymore. 
And so factions formed, divisions occurred, and pretty soon we lost everybody that we gained. <laughs> not, not the original 120 that came over, but pieces of every church. Just a new 120 left. And so we're scratching our heads wondering whether this whole thing was just a big mistake. But over time, the church began to grow again. It became very unified, and it became a center for developing and sending out pastors and leaders to plant churches, to strengthen churches, and to start new ventures. I can think of at least a dozen guys who have been sent from that church as pastors, some of them church planters. I'm one of them. Um, there's a group of young ladies from that church who went down to Bolivia and started a street ministry. Uh, there's a bunch of other people that were involved in crisis pregnancy centers in Minneapolis saving children's lives. Lots of things came out of that. The beginning was good, but the ending was better. <laughs> and we went through trials before we got to the end. It takes patience to see something through to the end. Hopeful realists wait it out. And they don't prematurely say, well, forget about that. This isn't going anywhere. No, we hang on. We wait to see how it turns out. It will be better. That's hopeful realism. Now, again, I have to say, if all we're talking about here is common advice, like look on the bright side of things or believe the best, then I don't think we're on solid ground for hopeful realism here. Because we know that not everything ends well in this life. We know that. Sometimes church splits don't lead to a better church. They lead to the end of a church. Your job may not end well. Your marriage may not end well. Your very life may not end well in human terms. And it's because of things beyond your control. You can't control the economy. You can't control what North Korea is doing. You can't eradicate every germ that could sicken you. You can't ensure that no drunk driver will swerve into your lane. Many, many things begin well and don't end well in this life. So how can a person be hopeful giving those realities? Here again, it's the believer in Jesus Christ that has a solid reason to be hopeful about the end of things being better than the beginning. We have a promise from God. Many of you know it. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. All things. Even drunk drivers who run into your car. He will cause it to work together for good to those who love God. We have that promise. The end of all things for the believer in Jesus is Revelation 21.4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Christians have a right to be hopeful realists with promises like that, with that vision of glory in front of us. And we've got many examples of hopeful realists in the Bible, people who faced difficult things, who faced the negatives of life, and they had hope and joy in the midst of it. 
because of these promises, because of their trust in the Lord. I'll name some. Job. Okay, we go way back. Way back to the early days. He lost all of his children. He lost his possessions. He lost his health. But he had a moment of clarity in Job chapter 19. In his deep suffering, he said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. (laughs) He was a sufferer. His flesh was full of boils and pain. He said, even though this is being destroyed, I'm going to see God. (laughs) Hope and realism. Prophet Habakkuk said, though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. He's saying, you know what? Everything around me looks like nothing good is happening. There's no food, there's no cattle, there's no evidence of anything happy around me. But I'm going to do this. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. (laughs) I'm going to rejoice in the God of my salvation because he's there and he's my Savior. You got young Mary, pregnant with the Lord Jesus, just a few months along. She goes to visit Elizabeth. Sure enough, Elizabeth is pregnant too. Even though she's older, she's carrying a child that everybody's going to believe is the result of adultery. Everybody's going to look at Mary and say, you adulteress. And she's under this oppressive Roman government. But what does she do? She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble state of his servant. Realism hope. There's a Savior in there. (laughs) My Savior is in there. Paul in prison, because of the gospel, shut up in a prison. He writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. In prison, not in a palace. In my prison, I'm going to rejoice because I have a Lord. (laughs) And he's been very good to me. I'm not going to sit here and bemoan the fact that I'm in prison unjustly. I'm going to choose rejoicing. That's hopeful realism. And of course, Jesus himself is the one who teaches us to think this way. In the world you have tribulation, he says. But take courage, I've overcome the world. Realism, you will have tribulation. You're going to have trouble in this world. But guess what? Hope. I've overcome the world. (laughs) I've accomplished salvation. I've rescued my people. It's a done deal. This world can't change that. (laughs) It's going to turn out good for those who follow Jesus. That's hopeful realism. Those are the glasses that believers in Jesus are to put on every morning. We of all people have reason to be hopeful in this under-the-sun life of trouble. Because our hope comes from over the sun in the person of Jesus Christ. Hopeful realism. That's how the Christian should go through life. But 
that's a habit that we have to acquire, isn't it? At least some of us, I think some people, you're just, you're the optimists, okay? You didn't need to hear this message probably, you were already there. <laughs> some of us struggle a little bit with putting these glasses on of hopeful realism. It's a habit that we have to acquire. We have temptations to respond other ways. And actually, Solomon writes about those ways in verses 9 and 10. I'll call these unhelpful alternatives to hopeful realism. Verse 9, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. In other words, when we encounter the harsh realities of life, the trouble, the adversity, we might just rage against it all. We might just get on the internet and just start ranting. You know, we just get mad at everything, focus on all that's wrong and stew on it. What a rotten world. I hate this world. Some people just get mad. That's the temptation we're going to have. There is a lot to be angry about. And yet we're not to be quick to anger, it says. Don't let it lodge in your hearts. Fools let anger become their dominant response their driving force in life. Fools walk around as angry people in response to everything. It's foolish because all it does is make things worse. There's another proverb, 29-22, that says, A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. (laughs) More transgression happens because of your anger than just the transgression you're responding to. You're making it worse. It's foolish. To live that way. That's counterproductive. Not a good alternative to hopeful realism. Here's another unhelpful alternative. Verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. In other words, we can respond to present trouble by pining away after the good old days. You know, oh, I wish we could turn back the clock to when I was a kid. And I had no responsibilities. (laughs) Or when I was young and I had unlimited energy. Or when there was no internet and no texting and people actually sat and talked to each other for hours. (laughs) Looking backward at the former days, pining after what once was. I have to admit, giving into this from time to time. I remember a day when I was younger when being a Christian was considered a good thing in our culture. That was considered respectable. It's not anymore. Now it's considered outright offensive to a lot of people. And I can think, why are these days like that? Why can't we have what we used to have? Solomon says, it's not wise to ask that question. That's not from wisdom. There's nothing to be gained by dwelling on the past. The past is locked. And the future is unknowable. All you have to concern yourself is what's in front of you today. Today might not be better than the former days, as far as you can tell, but today is what you have to work with. Wisdom would say, today, be a hopeful realist. Even if the former days were better than these, the Lord promises that the days to come are going to be better than these days. There will be no nostalgia in heaven. There will be no looking back on what we used to have. There will only be constant joy when faith becomes sight and our hopes are fulfilled. 
the best is really in front of you if you're a believer. It's not behind you. And that is good news. <laughs> but it's good news that I think we look, might think, well, it's mostly about what happens in the life to come. But what about today? Is there good news for today, this day? Do we have reasons to be hopeful realists today? And we do, and we've already talked about what they are, but there's one more in the passage. Um, there's a safety net under us when we feel like falling into the unhelpful responses of anger and nostalgia. It's the truth of God's sovereignty over everything that's happening today, in these days. God's sovereignty is another reason for hopeful realism. We saw this last week in the previous passage, but God's sovereignty over all things is a truth that once believed is a constant source of hope in the reality of our day-to-day existence. It's, we see it in verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. He's made both of them. So, that's saying that God is at work in both the positive and the negatives. That's the first time in the passage that God has been directly referenced, and it's in the context of his sovereign acts in both prosperity and adversity. We're, we're typically okay with believing that God is sovereign in prosperity. When something good happens, we say, praise God. At least Christians are taught to say that, and we ought to say that. We, but we're okay with saying, thank you, God, because something good happened, right? But when adversity comes around, we want to say, well, that's because of bad people. Or that was just an act of nature. Or that was just some random thing. There's nothing behind that. It just happened. But here we have a clear affirmation that God has made both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. There are some things that God has made crooked. And no matter how hard you try, you won't straighten it out. You want it to be different, but it can't be made different. You've probably experienced this Sometimes you have a day when nothing seems to go right, right? You keep trying to get back on track. You keep trying to get a thing done, and it's just not happening. Now, that happened to me this week. We've got this software, this online software that we use to track our finances, to stay on budget. But it only works if all these transactions magically appear <laughs> in, your, in your list of transactions so that you know what you spent, right, and you know where it's supposed to go. Well, our transactions aren't appearing magically. The magic is gone. And so I, I called the magician, the guy on the tech support line, I, except that you can't call him, you can only chat. You can't actually have a real conversation. You can only chat online. And so I'm chatting with the guy, and it's going on for about an hour, and we don't fix it. But he says, I'll get back to you. Well, two days later, he hasn't gotten back to me. So I go and chat again with another guy, and we start all over again. We go through the same hour, and we're still not there. He says, but I'll get back to you. So the next day, nobody's gotten back to me. So I go the third day, and I'm chatting with another guy for another hour, and I say, hey, look, this is already the third time. you got to help me here. <laughs> Fix this thing. Today, it's still not fixed because God is making it crooked. <laughs> I can't straighten it. Now, that's not to say there's no devil. There is a devil. There's an adversary. He's involved too. But God is over him. God can overrule him anytime he wants. He's letting this thing play out. 
And in my mind, I'm thinking, God, why aren't you helping me? And he's saying, I am. I am. I've made this crooked because I want to get your attention, because I want to work on your heart, because I want you to realize you're not God. You can't just do everything. You have to have me in your life. You have to depend on me, not your magic transactions appearing on your screen. And so there's a moment there where I say, okay, Lord, you win. I yield. (laughs) You're the Lord. I'm the servant. And this is good. That's creating good in me. There's times when God does, verse 3, where sorrow is better than laughter because by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. God's making my face sad as I'm staring into my screen, but he's making my heart glad because he's changing me. He's weaning me off all these things that I trust in so that I can trust in the God who is in both prosperity and adversity. That's another way we could be hopeful realists. This isn't completely random. It's not just this guy on the other side of the screen, this virtual person. It's God doing something here. So there's hope in it because he's good, and he's going to work it together for good. God makes the day of prosperity. He makes the day of adversity. He's over both of those days. They're in his control. They're according to the plan of divine wisdom. So let me close with this. What does it look like practically to be a hopeful realist today? We can do no better than follow the wisdom of verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Right? You're having a birthday party? Enjoy your birthday party. (laughs) You know, we had a great weekend last week. We had our family over over the weekend. We were having good meals together. We were having good playing games, having conversation. It was wonderful. It was great. And then he says... Do that. Rejoice in that. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Go ahead. Uh, Have fun. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made that day too. So what do we do on that day? We trust God. Trust Him all the time, but on that day is the day when you really need to the most, it seems. You trust Him in the day of adversity. He's made this day. Only He knows why, but He has a reason. He's taking me somewhere. The road for my life has to wander through days of prosperity and days of adversity. I wouldn't plan it that way, but he does, and he knows what he's doing. And you'll find that the end is better than the beginning for patient if we trust. So let's be hopeful realists who choose to rejoice in the Lord in our fleeting days under the sun. Let's pray. It's what we aspire to do even in this room, Lord. We choose to sing, even though I know a number of us have, a, we have things going on in our life that make us not want to sing. Um, but we choose, by your grace, to sing and to say you are good and that we trust you. And help us to do that not just here in this room, but beyond this room, to have our hearts lean in and believe you. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.